Welcome to the grand opening here at Whitewater Church in our new space, yeah? You guys excited to be here? That's like 80% of you, you're like, yes, church, and 20% are like, mm, church. Well, um, man, I I hope this is a a great day for you. We want to make sure you know if you're new here, this is a place you can belong before you believe, which means you don't have to believe what I believe, to build friendships here, explore faith here, and move forward on your spiritual journey. Uh, We've got a special day planned, so I'm going to jump right into it, uh, because we have some really, really cool things. Uh, The first thing I wanted to bring up is we're we're in this series that we've named um, Called to Compassion. And it's a fundamental belief here at Whitewater that every single person, every soul uh, was born with a calling. In fact, before you were born, God gave you a purpose, a calling. He gifted you. He's given you a particular uh, personality. Some of you super particular personality for the callings in your life. And even if you didn't know God, or maybe you're still exploring faith and you don't, wouldn't say you know God, uh, God created you with a purpose. And uh, our, our whole series is how we learn to be a community of calling in the way of Jesus, that we learn to be called into compassion in, in a world that has lots of condemnation, lots of, um, lots of uh, darkness. We're called to be a people of compassion. So, um, well, one of our big visions here is how do we get behind the callings of our community? Whether you're in the nonprofit world, the business world, the government world, the building family world, how do we as a church get behind you so that we can help you be salt and light in a dark world? And today we have someone really special who's going to share about her unique and I think very powerful calling. Um, I, I want to talk about this person just for a moment before I invite him up. Um, uh, this person... Uh, is very gifted and called to a specific world. Uh, this person uh, has a name. Her name is Krista Linden, and she's the leader here at Step by Step, the organization that we rent uh, from, that we're renting this space from. And in fact, uh, this this uh, nonprofit is a non-faith-based organization. And um, they work with vulnerable mothers and children and restoring families. And so for us at Whitewater, this is a, this is a nonprofit that we can align with and, and support. Amen? And so we get to hear from her. And uh, let me just say a few more things. Krista is not only the leader of Step by Step, she's a follower of Jesus. She uh, comes from the same family of churches that Whitewater comes from. She's a wife, a mom, a community leader, and like I said, a Christ follower. Would you please welcome up Krista Linden? Let's give her a hand. So you kind of have to like jump over things getting up here. Um, we are so blessed to be here. Um, we're so excited to have our grand opening, inviting the community out. Um, whether you know you, you believe what I believe or not, we're so glad you're here. Last service uh, was just an amazing interview with you. I wanted to thank you for that. Um, I'll kick us off like I did the last one. Um, the, the idea of calling and purpose are, are sacred to me. Would you just talk about how you found your calling? Well, good morning. I want to welcome you here um, on behalf of me and on behalf of Step by Step. As I'm looking out there, it does my heart so good to see children playing and throwing a football, and I hope they miss the lights that are dangling there, but um, I'm very, very, my heart is very warm, so thank you and welcome. 
I don't really know or try to understand what callings mean or how God gives us our callings, um, but I believe they have to do with the unique abilities that God has gifted us with um, and also the experiences that um, we have in our life. And there are two um, very burning experiences in my life that have um, carried me through some really hard times. I started Step by Step in 1997, so we are in our 22nd year. Nice. Um, I, uh, my first story I don't share very often. My second story I share all the time. And so I'm going to share with you that first story just because I think it's important um, in this setting. But I uh, grew up in a very strong Christian home, a very strong two-parent household. And um, my dad was very, very strict. And my dad was um, pretty legalistic, but in the early years of my childhood, my dad and my mom, both, my mom always, but was extremely loving. Family was uh, a priority for them, and we knew that when we were growing up. When I got to be a certain age, about 11 or 12, um, that relationship with my dad changed dramatically, and not because of anything I did or, or, or um, decisions that I had been making, but he had decided that at a certain age, um, the hammer came down, the rules came down, and our relationship was pretty severed from that uh, point. Not forever, but definitely through some very um, angry and rebellious teenage years on my part. Um, I made some decisions that I regret, and um, one of those uh, was that I thought at a certain point in time in my teenage years that I was pregnant. And um, I don't know how long it was, a couple of days, weeks, I'm not sure, but um, I knew my dad would kick me out. And I knew without a shadow of a doubt that I would have to figure out how to do this on my own. And the pregnancy test was not positive, and I went on to graduate from high school and uh, went to college where I met my husband. <clears throat> but it was also in college in a student teaching experience that I had a second very strong, uh, impactful experience. And it was, was um, I was a student teacher in a first grade classroom on the first day of school, and all the kids seemed to be super excited except this one little girl. And thinking that maybe she had had a, just a rough morning, I walked over to introduce myself to her in the moment that my eyes met hers, I, my heart just broke. And I was told that she had um, fetal alcohol syndrome, and I had never heard of fetal alcohol syndrome before, but the effects of it were immediately apparent to me. And I think this situation also rocked my world because she looked a lot like I did as a little girl. And so in my mind, um, and, and, my, and through my experience with Step by Step, um, it's amazing how quickly that spiral can go downwards when things um, and situations happen that... Uh, take you down fast. And that happened with this mom, and she never came to anything during the student teaching experience that I had. But at the end, I got permission to take her to the zoo, which you can't do as a teacher anymore. But I um, experienced the home environment, and um, probably one of the worst that I've seen in my, even in my time with Step by Step. So it wasn't long after that. Um, I did have to take her, obviously, back to her home, but she was put in foster care, and she was adopted. I didn't know that I, uh, my husband and I would have seven daughters. Um, that picture up there. Um, our oldest is 24, and she's here today with her husband, Bryce. So we did get a boy in the mix here just recently. Um, but all crazy tall, too. Like, like, <laughs> hey, guys. <laughs> um, so my life, uh, my, my, have, I've been head down for many, many years with raising my girls and with growing step by step. And so um, when my youngest was uh, independent and uh, my family felt situated, and um, I took on this project, um, 
that I'll explain a little bit later. So that is um, what, what drives me and motivates me every day is how do I um, help babies not only be born healthy and change the trajectory of their life, but that we support um, the mother answering some of those, the most vulnerable and critical times in a child's life. So. You're, you're uniquely called and you're leading in an incredible way in our community. Um, how have you connected your calling and maybe your personal purpose with this place? What's your vision for this place to empower women and families? Would you mind sharing that? So long story short, uh, we bought, a, bought this place. I really wanted to buy a farm for lots of reasons. I grew up on a farm. I have farmers in my family, and I wanted it was a very long, long road to even get to a purchase and sale agreement here. Um, but we bought it at the end of 2015. We raised a million and a half dollars to do that. And since then, we've raised or secured almost another uh, $10 million to build this out and the um, uh, infrastructure that goes along with that. And so my vision for this place is many. I could spend a long time talking to you um, about it, but there are a couple of that are very important to me. And first of all, is that we do everything we can here with excellence, that our event space um, is excellent, that our kitchen is run in the most excellent manner, that our restaurant uh, will be top notch, that our greenhouse, uh, which there's a lot you don't know about what's going on here, but that is also a thriving business. And then we will eventually have an early learning center here. And as this place builds out, that we do it with excellence. Um, we were asked by the brick tile layer in the restaurant that's in the back that has not opened yet. It'll be open at the end of this month. But uh, when he was laying the, putting the tiles up, he asked all of us to put um, right something that we feel about this place on the back of the brick. And the first thing that came to mind to me was that this place would be life-giving. <clears throat> and healing to the soul. And I feel in this world, so much life is being sucked out of people and so much damage being done to the soul. So that is my hope for this place. And then thirdly, we have been invited to write a $2 million grant through the United Health Foundation, which we will find out about in December. And that grant will be used to bring women to, this is a, this is a social enterprise here. We're creating jobs for women who have worked with Step by Step. And so that $2 million grant, I ask you all to pray that we get that, um, will provide the supportive services. So bringing women in who just are not in a place where they are, they're motivated, but they're not in a place where they're ready to enter into um, and be reliable as an employee. And so we, there's lots of work that we want to be able to do here to get them to that place where they can live life more abundantly. And so after three years, it is our hope that the revenue generated from this social enterprise here will replace that grant and that it will be sustainable um, ongoing. So. Um, that's a powerful vision. And we, like our vision at Whitewater is to get behind each and every person because there's no throwaway people and everyone has a calling, everyone has a purpose, and to get behind their calling, empower it. Um, so thank you for sharing that with our church because we want to be a support to you. Thank you. Um, I have two other questions. Uh, the first one is, um, as a female leader in our community, what have you learned about being a leader? Because um, in, our, in our church, uh, there's a, 
there's a lot of uh, little girls, like my daughter's six years old, and there's a lot of, lot of women who have been given big dreams. And I think it's an inspiration seeing what a leader like you go after the dream that God has put in your heart. Could you speak to that a little bit? I'm going to try to do it more eloquently than I did in the first service, but um, first of all, there was a a season, um, I think we have seasons that we need to learn to honor and um, give ourselves grace with, and especially the seasons of early children being young, and um, where my role was and where I needed to be um, in that season, and when my family was in a place where I could um, move forward with this bigger dream and this bigger project, which has been way bigger and harder on me and my family than I ever imagined that it would be. Um, but in the early years, I've worked, in for first 15 years of my career, I worked mostly with women. I'm raising women. Um, I am working, our clients are women, I have all female employees for the most part, and so in the last seven years I have um, stepped into a very male-dominated world, and um, I have to say that I didn't say in the first services, um, many of those um, men that I have been able to work with have greatly impacted the success of this project. Um, I also want to say, just because I want to be very real about it, is I, um, Jerry Corum, who is a major, was a major donor of this project at the beginning, and the site is named the Jermaine Corum Center. But when I first met with him about eight years ago, he asked me what I needed most as a leader of an organization, and I said, I really need a female um, um, business mentor. And he connected me with the president of Columbia Bank, who was Melanie Dressel, and she has since passed away of a heart attack. But the very first time that I met with her, I asked her the question about um, working as a female in a very, banking being a very male-dominated field. And um, I'll never forget when she looked at me and she said, I have very little tolerance for jerks. And she went like this. And then I asked her why she is not, did not have very many women in leadership actually in at Columbia Bank at the time that I was meeting with her. It was something that I noticed. And um, she just made the comment that she just finds that when women reach higher and higher levels of power and position that they really um, become very aggressive and very difficult for her to work with. And so those two things I think have played out critically in that first of all, I think it was okay for me to learn that I'm not going to, not all men that I work with am I going to resonate with and it's okay to separate myself and to realize that I don't have to get along with everybody. Not everybody's going to resonate with this project and it's okay. It's okay for it to be like that. And the other thing um, is that I've really learned that, um, and I really believe this, and I think it's my personality, that there is strength in quiet leadership. And it has been um, a very high priority of mine to walk the talk and to um, really let my actions um, show more than my words or my forcing um, anything that um, my will or my way, but I have truly believed um, that God's hand is on this project, and I believe that it was my responsibility to take the next step, um, and it was not my, my need to really force um, in, any, in any capacity uh, what should and it will, would eventually end up happening here. So I hope that kind of answers your question. No, it's phenomenal. Um, you'd mentioned, too, when we talked, just how you and your husband have both led in this whole process but not at the expense of each other. It's not like mm-hmm. one had to be the leader and the other, you both have led mm-hmm. in your strengths and when, when the needs came up, you, you've led th- through that. And I just think that's a powerful example for our church. My last question for mm-hmm. you is, um, what would you say to anybody, but especially mothers and children who've been affected by the brokenness um, you experience and work in? What would you, mm-hmm. what would you say to them? 
Well, I um, have thought about this question since you have brought it up, and um, I, I don't like to ever pretend that I know the answers or that I have a solution. And that's why the organization is called Step by Step, because I think it is each of our journey to put one foot in front of the other and do um, the next right thing for our situation. But a couple of thoughts have come to mind. First of all, um, I think in this room we know that God brings the ultimate healing and redemption. Um, second of all, um, I really believe this in my own story and as I've watched women is that we are stronger than we think. I think we don't give ourselves credit for how strong we can be. Um, that another is that uh, most of the trauma that we see uh, come through the doors is not their fault, it's not our fault, um, and especially those who are dealing with uh, childhood trauma. Um, but I do strongly believe um, that healing is our responsibility to take ownership of. And it's not just an, a responsibility, but I think it's our opportunity because when we leave healing to other people or we expect other people to do and act in certain ways, we give them the power and um, to um, on our life and we're not able to control them. So that when we take ownership of our own healing, there is power in moving that forward. Um, and if we don't pursue um, that healing, um, we live a life that is short of what I believe God has called us to be. And I believe God has called each of us, regardless of our brokenness, to live an abundant life. And I love one of the, the scripture, John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. So that is what step-by-step step is about, especially um, this project giving us the opportunity to move women towards a more abundant life. Um, and if we don't, I think this is the most important motivator behind step-by-step, step, but if we don't pursue that healing, um, we pass that damage and hurt down. And so that's what we are about here, is really stopping that um, pattern. So. Yeah, friends, could we give Krista a huge hand? Thank you. Man, I love learning from good leaders, and um, I've just been so thankful. I've been learning a lot from, from Krista and her family. Um, you know what? We're going to talk about the healing of the soul, um, but before we do that, we have so many people in here, you know, from different backgrounds. Could, you just, could we just take like 60 seconds, two minutes, just to say hi to someone near you, just to be friendly? It is church, right? We're supposed to be friendly. Say hi to somebody. <laughs> Tell them you like them. friendly, quit being so nice. 
I'm going to start us off with a story. Uh, this is a true story, and I wrote it down because this happened and it was tr- traumatizing. My, um, when, I was, when I was about 18, um, and I, I came back from Bible college to be with my family for a summer, my cousin came to live with us when his parents died. Uh, he was 13, and he brought his Boston Bulldog. Its name was Rebel, and it had walleyes. The dog attacked anything and everything that came to the door. One time, we uh, came to the front door landing to find a good friend in his 80s. In a fight for his life, leg outstretched, pinning Rebel's crazy-eyed maw to the wall, just trying to keep himself alive. So my parents thought, well, we need to deliver that dog from the demons of derangement uh, (laughs) by using a shock collar. We were desperate. It was the 90s. And people were less judgy then. (laughs) I can feel your judgment. (laughs) It wasn't my parents. It had an effect, the the electric collar had an effect opposite of intention. Mom flipped the switch on and when when, uh, Rebel barked, instead of stopping immediately, he started howling. Vets say that there's something like 2% of dogs that react this way. Rebel was a 2% dog. I remember the little fiend flipping and flopping and foaming and screaming in an eerily human falsetto shriek down the street. Neighbors who were out in their, uh, out in their lawns, out in the street with their kids, uh, I saw their smiles turn to screams of horror. Adults, kids ran for safety uh, in homes, in hideaways, in bushes, up ladders, Uh, onto roofs as the demonic dog shrieked its way, flipping and flopping through the neighborhood. I can't remember seeing anything else like it before or since. It was traumatizing. I remember my mother chasing the dog. I remember my brother hiding from the dog. I remember my sister weeping for the dog. And I remember my father laughing. as Rebel reeled around our terrified neighborhood, electricity empowering his madness. (laughs) Many of us in here imagine God has a spiritual shock collar that he wants to put on people. No, like a, a spiritual smite collar he wants to use to control or condemn them. And uh, I can understand that image in a world that we live in filled with rage, retribution, and revenge. We believe God wants to break us, not bless us. We think that the church wants to condemn us and control us. But such images, I believe, can reduce God to our worst projections of what is in our own hearts. It was Jesus himself who said, I came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. Jesus didn't come to condemn you or me. He came to save us and to heal us. God isn't on a retribution mission. He's on a rescue mission. This means that the church is a hospital where sick people come to get well. Amen? Amen. It's not a fashion show to look good for an hour and then head home. It's not a university to get some information that we don't apply to our life. The church, at its best, is a hospital. It's a place of healing. It's where people come to get well, move from sickness into wholeness and health.
In fact, many people don't realize this, but the, the church as it, it has followed Jesus and the church has had mistakes because it's made of people that are getting healed and have brokenness. But the church's best gifts to the world are those that have been in the way of Jesus. Do you know that healthcare and hospitals were invented by the church? Because they were following in one of the main ministries of Jesus. He preached, he taught, uh, and he healed. And um, the, the, the world has been better for the gifts of healthcare and healing that have been given through the church where Jesus people said, no, science and faith aren't to be separate. Like actually healthcare and hospitals are one of the most beautiful expressions where sciences and faith come together. And what I wanna to talk to you about today is the healing of the human soul. Not just, uh, not just physical healing, not just emotional or relational, but also spiritual healing. There's, we, we, are, we are made up of different dimensions of the human person. We're complex being made in the image of God. Everyone matters to God. And here's the conviction from which I preach today. Uh, uh, here's what it is. Every person is a child of God and needs healing. Every person. And God wants to heal all of his children. Amen? So, I wanna tell you one story about the healing compassion of Jesus. And I wanna break it into three scenes. The first scene is um, the desperate father. The second scene is the desperate daughter. The third and last scene is the healing father. So let's jump in. We're in the book of Mark. We're gonna be looking at, it's a short story. It won't be long. Three scenes. The first scene is the desperate father. Picking up in verse 21, you might wanna get your notes out or your Bible or you can follow along behind me. Just, uh, Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd had gathered around him on the shore. And then a leader of the local synagogue whose name was Jairus arrived. Now scholars say Jairus, um, he was a synagogue leader. He's like the president of the synagogue, which meant he was wealthy, meant that he was in high standing. But also uh, scholars say that Jairus was actually a Gentile, non-Jewish man who was becoming Jewish and was a leader um, probably because of wealth and he was becoming Jewish by practicing the Jewish faith. Now this man Jairus of uh, well-known, um, high on the totem pole in the culture, uh, went to meet Jesus. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and lay your hands on her, heal her so, she can le- so, so that she can live. And Jairus, it says, pleads fervently to Jesus, throws his, his whole body at the feet of Jesus. And in this moment, we see a desperate father and a cry of desperation. I'll never forget hearing my friend Brandon uh, cry out to the Lord on behalf of his daughter, Lily, who was dying. Her body, she'd been born septic and she was dying. The, the, the doctors didn't have very much hope at all. And I remember his prayer crying out, God, would you heal my little girl? Would you heal her? There's nothing more piercing than the cry of a father for his daughter, the cry of a mother for her children, that desperation that comes through. And at this point, Jairus, he's a, he's a religious leader in a sense. He's a leader in the synagogue, and he's well-known, and he's wealthy, and he's, up the, he's an upper-crust leader. And, and he, at this point, 
He doesn't care at all what his synagogue would think of him going to Jesus, and probably a lot of people wouldn't approve. He doesn't care about what the Pharisees or the Sadducees, the religious leaders, think of him running to Jesus. He doesn't think, he doesn't care about what his wealthy friends would think of him. At this point, he's in a point of desperation. He is the desperate father coming to his last ray of hope, seeing if there's a man who can heal his daughter. And this is in a culture where when women are older, they're seen as property. For this man, this is his daughter. And I love the response of Jesus. When he throws himself at Jesus' feet, here's the response in verse 24. Jesus went with him. When we cry out to Jesus on behalf of somebody else, when we cry out even on our own behalf, and Jesus walks with us. We serve a God who wants to walk with us into the fire, walk with us into the challenges, into the, the hardship. And all the people followed, and crowding around him, they went. And hope for a desperate father was born. Jesus is coming with me. The healer is coming. Scene two, the desperate daughter. Now, in the same story, from a totally different angle, a totally different story is happening. A woman in the crowd, she's not given a name, it just says a woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors and over the years she had spent everything she had to pay them. She'd seen multiple doctors, probably multiple religious uh, leaders and just trying to have healing. She's bled her bank account down to nothing. She's probably in debt, um, but she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. Now we know a few things. This probably means that she has cervix cancer, some kind of uterine cancer, because she's been bleeding and, and she's had it for 12 years. She's slowly dying. There's been no help. And I don't know if any of you have ever lived with chronic pain and illness and sickness, but it steals your joy. It steals your ability to think clearly. It steals your personality from you. It, it, it affects so much. My wife went through about a five-year period where, where she had back pain, lower back pain, that just changed her. It was like the, one of the hardest seasons we've ever been in um, with, with our marriage, and it was, it was devastating. Doctor after doctor, oh, I've never seen this. Send us to another one. I've never seen this. Maybe this person can help, and, or maybe it's this, and it wouldn't be that, and it was just person after person, you know, appointment after appointment, dollar after dollar, and no help for five years. The other thing for this woman is when you have an issue like this in her culture, you become religiously or ceremonially unclean. And so you have to, you're an outcast. You're not allowed to worship with the worshiping community. And, and for Jewish people, the, the synagogue and worship was at the center of their community. And she couldn't be around her family members. She couldn't touch anybody. She hadn't been touched for years because of her sickness. So rather than having leaders and people who would draw near to her, she had a community with leaders who drew away from her. Some of you have experienced that or things like that. And she, she had heard about Jesus, it says in verse 27. She didn't even know Jesus. She had just heard about him. And so she came up behind him, and, though, and through the crowd, she touched his robe. She just heard about him, but she, she just believed there would be healing for her. For she thought to herself, if I touch his robe, I will be healed. She had faith. Oh, I'll, maybe I could be healed. Maybe this is the one. Where does that belief come from? This is a, a bonus for you guys. I didn't get to preach this in the last service. But for her, the reason she reaches out is she knew her Old Testament. She knew her Bible. In Malachi 4.2, it says this, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. 
and you will go free, leaping with joy. What does that mean? Well, when that was written, when, with there's, there was, will be healing in his wings. Do you know what they called the robes with the tassels on any Jewish rabbi? They called it his wings. And so you have someone who believes that this might be the Messiah. There might just be healing in his wings, in his robe, and reaches out. Doesn't even feel worthy to call it, just reaches out. Immediately the bleeding stopped and she could feel her in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. Delivered from 12 years of anguish and separation and pain and, 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 and an inability to belong to her community. Not being able to touch anyone or be touched by anyone. Jesus realized at once that the healing power had gone out from him and so he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched me? in a crowd of people pressing around him, who touched me? Like he has this OCD moment, or that's what his disciples think. They're like, Jesus, there's all these people around you, like everyone's been touching you. Are you kidding me? And and their response is so so funny. Um, His disciples say, look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask, who touched me? Like, are you kidding? But in this moment, we see the Father's heart in a world gone mad. Jesus can sense the smallest hand reaching out to him. The most insignificant hand, the invisible hand that no one has seen or cared about, he can sense it. That's the God that we serve. That's the healing, compassionate Jesus that I want you to know about. But Jesus kept looking. He didn't listen to his disciples. He kept looking around to see who had done it. Who had touched him? Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her. She'd been healed, and and she came and fell to her knees in front of him, feeling maybe she had done something wrong, but she's healed, and told him what she had done. And in this moment, I think we can miss it, because in our culture, we, we, we we don't understand what was happening. But in this moment, I think Jairus was infuriated. Because in this culture, if a rabbi is touched by someone who's unclean, you have to go through a week or two weeks of ceremonies to become clean again. You're not allowed to minister because you've been infected with their sin and their, and their infirmity, their, their, their um, sickness. And so Jairus realizes this woman has touched a rabbi, the rabbi who's coming to heal his 12-year-old daughter, and this woman has stolen her life. This woman has given his daughter a death sentence because now Jesus cannot go and heal his daughter. He's a rabbi. He's been infected. Do you see it? And in this moment of fury, like of elation, Jairus has got the healer. He got his attention. Jesus is coming. He's with him. And on the way, his hopes are stolen from him. Have you ever been in a place where all your hopes were just dashed? And in this moment, Jesus speaks to the woman and to Jairus in one of the most beautiful moments of compassion in in the Bible. Like, listen to this. Jesus, he speaks. He said to her, looking at her, and says, daughter. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. But for Jairus and that woman, that had tremendous meaning, the word daughter. 
Because for her, she's just been a woman. No one knows her name. She's the sick one. She's the unhealed one. She's the unclean one. But this day, she's daughter to Jesus. And Jesus, I can see him looking over at Jairus saying, this is my daughter. As much urgency and love and desperation as you have for your daughter, I have for this daughter. I don't play favorites. You can be the leader of the synagogue and I care about your daughter as much as the woman who has been kicked out of the synagogue. Amen? Do you see the compassionate healing of Jesus? Daughter. Jesus feels the same way Jairus Jairus feels about his daughter. Every daughter matters to God. Every daughter matters matters to God. You saw Krista stand up here. I mean, that's a, that's a message, a life message. Every son matters to God. In some ways, we're finding out that the story of the scene of the desperate daughter is really the, the scene of two desperate daughters. One who's been sick and dying for 12 years, the other who's been alive for 12 years. That's significant. And Jesus is right in the middle of it. Here's the last scene. The healing father, while he was still speaking to her, the messengers arrived from home, the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, and they said, your daughter's dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. It's over. It's done. His fears are confirmed. His daughter is gone. He's lost her. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just have faith. Underline that in your Bible, if you have your Bible. Don't be afraid, just have faith. Have you ever been in a moment of like doubt, like it's done, it's over, it's hopeless, it's gone, the dream, the thing, the health, like it's pointless and this woman received something great, that's awesome, but we, we lost out. And Jesus speaks up and says, don't give up. Don't you ever, ever give in to fear. Have faith. Now listen to the rest of the story. Then Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anyone go with him except Peter, James, and John, his core disciples. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing, and he went inside and asked, what's all the commotion and all the weeping? And this, this child isn't dead. She's only asleep. The crowd laughed at him because they know a dead person. But he made them all leave and took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples for this intimate moment with her. And it's interesting, there's this public healing in front of everybody and then now Jesus, he knows the pain behind this as a father's heart. Jesus is showing he is a healing father for the desperate father. In the room holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha Kaum, which means little girl, get up. Little girl, daughter, get up. Get up. And the little girl, who was 12 years old, immediately stood up and walked around. They were overwhelmed and totally amazed. And Jesus gave them strict orders. Don't tell anyone what's happened. Luckily, someone, you know, totally you know, violated that uh, rule by Jesus and let us know what happened. And then he told them to give her something to eat. And I love that part of the story because, one, I love to eat. But have you ever been sick and then you, like, the fever broke and you got better, like, and been, like, super hungry? I'm always like famished. Imagine if you're dead. 
and then you come back, like, how hungry would you be, you know? Like, she's just, like, eating, like, their, their whole, like, equivalent of a fridge, you know? I just love that. So here's the three lessons and the invitation to you as our, our church today on a day that I hope would be a day of healing. The first is every person, excuse me, the desperate father teaches us to reach out for someone else, to reach out on behalf of someone else. This is in your notes. Reach out for someone else. Jairus was his daughter's advocate. When she couldn't go to Jesus, he went to Jesus and brought the healer. So reach out for someone else and reach out to somebody else. Some of you might be so sick or you're so tired, you're so worn down that you're like that 12-year-old girl, she can't get out of bed and you, you haven't been able to. But just maybe the act of faith for you today is just reach out and tell somebody that you need prayer, that you're hurt, that you're broken, that, that you need healing in your life in whatever area that is. Jesus knows, but, but reach out to somebody. The second lesson we learn is from the, des- the desperate daughter teaches us to reach out yourself. Krista said this. She encouraged us, reach out for healings. Make the, whatever movement you can make, whatever, whatever step you can take, take it, reach out, and reach out to Jesus. The woman feared that she was probably worthless and outcast, didn't have enough, uh, didn't have enough power, um, maybe afraid that she'd be disappointed again and again and again. But what did she have to lose? What did Jairus have to lose? They reached out for healing. And she said, Jesus, heal me. And she reached out in faith. I love Jesus says, don't be afraid when we doubt. Just have faith. Reach out to Jesus. Maybe that's your step of faith today. Maybe you don't believe in Jesus. Maybe you are not sure at this point in your faith. Maybe that you've just been living with the chronic thing or the chronic relational brokenness and the relational sickness or whatever it might be. Today's your day to reach out for healing. Third lesson, the healing father teaches us that when we reach out for healing, Jesus reaches out with healing. Maybe that's just something put in your mind. You might feel worthless or like God's busy and you don't want to reach out or you don't want to be disappointed or whatever it might be or you're a hopeless situation. But when we reach out for healing, Jesus reaches out with healing and we can trust Jesus. He went through suffering. He went through pain. It says this in Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. He himself bore our sickness into him, in his body and carried our pains. We are healed by his wounds. Jesus didn't just go through the world not knowing pain. He absorbed our pain. He was put on the cross for our pain, absorbing our pain so that he could bring healing to the pain in our life. Amen? God longs for his sons and daughters to find healing. I'm willing to bet there's people in here that need physical healing. That come in here with physical brokenness and sickness. Emotional brokenness and pain from your past. Whether it's this last week or 10, 20 years ago. Relational brokenness and spiritual sickness in your life. And today's the day to reach out. A step of faith, whatever that means, reach out to Jesus. My friend Brandon and his wife Abby, when they prayed for their daughter to be healed, others gathered around them, a whole church, and then a whole, their whole family, a whole city, and a whole network of people started praying like crazy. And God miraculously saved Lily's life. She's probably with the children today. Beautiful little girl. And it was a miraculous 
healing. Um, Sarah and I, just some of you guys might know our story. We, a few years ago, went to the doctor and found out that we had twins. And in the same day that we found out we had twins, 23 weeks when everything should be fine or 21 weeks when everything should be fine, um, the doctor said their hearts had stopped. And we prayed and we begged God and we had friends praying with us and for us that they'd find something else or God would do a miracle. And we lost our twins. But I know that someday I'll be able to see them on the other side of heaven because healing will come. Just like Jairus, he had to go through death and see, to see Jesus heal his daughter. And then there was a season where my, um, my mom was getting really sick and had a surgery and she kept bleeding. And uh, there was one moment where she almost bled to death and we rushed her into a hospital and they were just putting, they just had her in her wheelchair and they had her on the side and it was getting worse. And I, we could just tell something was really fundamentally wrong and she was bleeding and it was getting really bad and the doctors weren't seeing her. And finally my dad was like, somebody help. He just yelled and you know, people were like, what's going on? And he looked at a nurse. He's like, you need to help my wife right now. She's dying. And she, the, the nurse came over. No, everything's okay. But he's like, she is bleeding. To, we need help. Finally took her out, back just to get her, my dad to be quiet. And then they saw and they're like, oh my gosh, like we need to get someone in here and, and like saved her life. And it was a slow process over time. Very natural. And God is a healing God. I don't know if God would heal, will heal you and your thing like this, like he did for my friends, a miraculous healing. Or if you'll have loss and you won't be able to see the, the people you love and, until the other side of heaven or if it's gonna be a process. But I can tell you this, God... God loves every son and daughter in this room and he wants them healed. Why wouldn't you reach out? And here's my challenge. We're gonna have key leaders around the room. I'm gonna be down here and I want today the next two songs, heck, even the rest of the service, I want it to be a time of healing where you reach out and your act of stepping out from the crowd and reaching out to Jesus is an act of praying with somebody. Let someone know and you, be, you can let them know as much as you want or as little as you want. Pray on behalf of somebody. I think every one of us in here have somebody that needs healing in their life that we could pray for. Let, this, let today be marked by healing. Go to, you can tell as much as you want or as little and pray with them and look for Jesus to heal. Look for his hand to be at work in some way, shape, or form. And I think one of the questions I've been asking is why do we wait? Why do we not ask Jesus for healing and then we don't want to be disappointed. We, 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 we don't want to, he's busy. God's got a lot of things to take care of. Will he really do it? But one of the things is, why do we go to everyone else for healing before we go to God? When we could just go to him first. He's the creator. People call him the great physician. He, God made your body. He made your soul and your spirit. He knows better than anyone the healing process you need. So today, would you seek healing? for somebody and reach out for healing for yourself in this service. Even if we have to have lines of people waiting for prayer, I don't care how long it takes. We want you to, to have a day of healing. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray for my friends today. I pray that today here, gathered together, 
that people would find healing physically or or start on the path toward healing physically. Whether it's cancer, chronic pain, they can't get pregnant, um, some unspoken hurt, some complication, Lord, on the cellular level, begin their healing today. Uh, Children, parents, grandparents, I pray for their healing. I pray for emotional and relational healing. Lord, minds that have been hurt, uh, emotions that have been hurt psychologically through abuse or traumatic events, God, would you begin the healing today? Would they reach out today to somebody and begin that healing? Not just keep it inside, but to reach out, Lord. People who've been ripped and wounded in our community, relationally or emotionally, scarred from the past, begin that healing today. Spiritually, Lord, people carrying bitterness, darkness, ugliness, spiritual wounds on the soul, rips and tears of the soul, heal them today. Heavenly Father, those scarred by evil or scarring others through evil, Lord, would you help them? Would you transform them from being transmitters of pain into being transformed um, through their pain into followers of you and to um, uh, total new moments and, and seasons of healing. God, we pray for this. Give them patience and endurance if it's going to be a process, but let them not do it alone, Lord. Fa- Heavenly Father, you are the healer. You are the healing Father. As people reach out today, would they be healed by your presence? Amen.